chapter number 18 of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rowan Pattigal. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H.C. Adams. Chapter 18 Nearly a week had passed, and the cortege was again setting out from Heidelberg, where it had arrived three days previously. Lieutenant Everts greeted his old companions-in-arms with much cordiality, and they travelled in great comfort as well as safety under his escort. He had expressed his great regret that he could not accompany them with his men to Lichtenberg. The distance between these two towns was much longer than between Lüneburg and Standerton, or between Standerton and Heidelberg. The country, too, was wilder and more sparsely inhabited. His presence, and that of half a dozen of his men, would have made everything smooth, but he was under orders to leave immediately for Newcastle, as soon as he had performed his errand. All efforts to engage trustworthy men at Heidelberg had proved vain, and they were obliged to set out at last with the same party which had started from Lüneburg. It was with equal surprise and satisfaction that they overtook a few hours after leaving Heidelberg some soldiers belonging apparently to the Natal contingent with a corporal at their head who were escorting some prisoners, chiefly natives. These were handcuffed as well as linked together by lashings round their arms. The soldiers were all white men. George, who was riding in advance of his party, moved up and spoke to the corporal. He introduced himself as Mr. Rivers, late of the mounted infantry, and stated that his companions had belonged to the same corps. The man answered civilly enough, though with a rather confused manner, that he remembered Lieutenant Rivers and his friends quite well, having been present at the action at Ulundi. George then inquired whether he was conveying his prisoners, and heard with much satisfaction that it was to Lichtenberg. It appeared that there had been a riot there, houses had been plundered and murders committed, and these men, who were believed to have been concerned in the riot, had been arrested on the frontiers, and were on their way to Lichtenberg to be identified and tried. George again expressed his satisfaction, and proposed that the two parties should travel together for mutual convenience and security. To this the corporal rejoined that he should be quite satisfied with such an arrangement, and George rode off well pleased to give the information to Van der Hayden and Margetts, who were acting as rearguard. The Dutchman at once expressed his satisfaction, as did Margette, though in a more guarded manner, and George noticed with some surprise that he scrutinised very closely the corporal and his men when he rode up to speak to them. He made no remark, however, and George, riding back, resumed his place by Margette's side. It was still quite early, desirous of avoiding the midday heat, which for the last day or two had been very great. They had started two hours before daybreak, and the whole landscape had hitherto been wrapped in a gloom through which they could not do much more than distinguish their way. But the dawn now began to dapple the skies, and with the first light appeared a scene so startling that our two travellers drew rein to gaze with wonder on it. As they had approached Heidelberg a few days previously, they had noticed how dull and uninteresting the landscape appeared. 
The ground had been rising continually for a long time past until it had attained the height of some hundreds of feet and then a long undulating level had succeeded, extending as far as the eye could reach without rock or forest or scrub to break the monotony. Nor were there, for vast distances together, traces to be found of the hand of man. There were few enclosures or habitations, and even flocks of sheep were of rare occurrence. They had expected to find the country on the other side of Heidelberg, very nearly the same in appearance as that which they had encountered before reaching it, but the landscape which they now beheld formed the most striking contrast to it. In place of the vast and barren plain, varied only by dried clumps of dull vegetation and bare heaps of sand or stone, there appeared a scene which might have vied with that of fairyland. Rich forests, with a most picturesque valley of outline, were seen environing the shores of a lake whose deep blue surface was studded with verdant islets in the foreground rose castles and abbeys and picturesque ruins grouped with a skill that no landscape painter could have surpassed and the distant view was closed by mountain ridges presenting the most striking effects of light and shade pretty to look at remarked matamo who had just ridden up as he noticed george's admiring gaze pity it's not real not real returned george what do you mean you'll soon see was the brief reply and sure enough, almost immediately afterwards, the brilliant landscape melted away like a dissolving view in a magic lantern, and a long stretch of barren down and rock and scrub was all that could be discerned. A mirage! exclaimed George. Well, I have often heard of them, but I could not have believed the delusion was so perfect. Wonderful country for cheats of that sort, remarked Matimo. It often looks like that before sunrise. The midday halt was made under some high cliffs, which threw a long shadow and afforded some protection from the heat. Here, van der Hayden had some conversation with a corporal, and agreed with him that, as his party could not proceed beyond a certain distance every day, all of them, except the corporal himself, being on foot, the soldiers should be allowed occasionally to change with the mounted men of van der Hayden's party, while the prisoners were permitted to take their seats in the wagon. Margetts uttered a hasty exclamation when this arrangement was reported to him, but he said nothing more, and everything went on prosperously till the halt took place. They sat down in three parties, the corporal and his men by the side of the wagon, Matamo, Haxo, and the Hottentots by the other, while the third, consisting of what might be termed the gentry of the party, took their places under some mimosas on the brink of a small fountain almost immediately under a high and steep rock the meal was half over when suddenly there was heard a loud jabbering noise above and the party looking up saw several hideous faces peering over the ridges of the rocks bushmen exclaimed reggie i have been expecting to fall in with them for some time we are not so very far from their country i believe hello up there he continued as a number of large stones came rattling down from above. Stop that, do you hear? Or you'll find two can play at it. He raised his gun as he spoke and pointed it at the rocks. It is no use laughing to them, observed Hardy, laughing. I don't suppose they would understand you if they were bushmen, but they're not. They're baboons, mandrels, I believe, is their exact name. There are a great number of them in this part of the country. I wonder we haven't fallen in with them before. Baboons, hey, cried Reggie, the mischievous brutes. 
He added a minute or two afterwards as another large stone passed over his head, which it very narrowly missed. I say, I am not going to stand this sort of thing. I'll just give them a shot or two to improve their manners. Stop, Mr. Margetts, don't fire, cried van der Hayden. They are the most revengeful and malicious creatures in the world, and as strong and fierce as tigers. There are hundreds of them, and they'll attack us in a body if you provoke them. His warning came too late. Reggie had already fired, and a yell of pain from above announced that his aim had been successful. The next moment, a dozen huge mandrels had sprung over the rocks and began to descend the cliffs, leaping from point to point as nimbly as squirrels. "'Run for it!' shouted Hardy. "'Take shelter in the wagons. We may keep them off there, but it is our only chance.' There was no need of further warning. Matamo, Haxo, and the Hottentots, the corporal, his men, and his prisoners, though they had been too far off to hear what was passing, no sooner saw the baboons coming down the rocks, screaming and gesticulating with fury, than they became aware of the danger of the situation, and made straight for the wagons as the only haven of shelter. Nor were they a moment too soon. The front and back boards of the wagons were only just secured when they were surrounded by a multitude of infuriated brutes endeavouring to pull down the tilt and boards of the wagon. Others climbed onto the top and tore away the tarpaulin covering from the ribs, endeavouring to wrench out the ribs themselves with their strong, sharp claws. They became, however, in this manner, an easy mark for the party inside. These at first only loaded their guns with powder, hoping to scare their assailants without further rousing their fury, but they were soon obliged to try sterner measures. The brutes, some of which were nearly five feet high and extremely strong and agile, succeeded in loosening more than one of the ribs of the wagon, and would soon have forced their way in if the bullets which followed one another in rapid succession had not laid assailant after assailant in the dust. But undeterred apparently by the deadly shower, they continued their attack, gibbering and screaming with fury. The whole of the covered wagon was now torn away, and the baboons thrusting down their long sharp claws endeavoured to clutch their enemies within, rendering it almost impossible for them to continue to load. "'I say, George!' exclaimed Reggie, as he rid himself with difficulty from a huge baboon which had seized him by the hair, firing his revolver directly into his chest. "'These brutes are worse than the Zulus. I wish I had my bayonet here. That would have been the thing for them.' "'You're right, Reggie,' answered George. "'I'm just going to use my wood-knife. "'My revolver is empty and I have no time to reload. "'The knife isn't as good as the bayonet, but it is the next best thing.' "'The others followed his example, all excepting Hardy, "'who, with the coolness of an old campaigner, "'had lain himself down on the floor of the wagon, "'out of the reach of the assailants, "'and from thence took aim with his revolver, "'bringing down one baboon after another,' and always singling out those which seemed to be the most likely to break in. But notwithstanding the vigorous resistance offered, it seemed as if the strong ribs of the roof must speedily give way, when suddenly there burst forth a volume of flame which enveloped for a minute or two the whole wagon, screaming, not with rage now but with fright, the mandrels leaped down and rushed away, scrambling up the sides of the rocks more quickly than they had come down. At least twenty were left on the ground, either dead or too severely wounded to effect their retreat, while several others limped in the rear of their companions, scarcely able to accomplish the ascent. 
Stop, Mr. Margetts, cried Hardy as he saw Reggie raise his rifle. Don't fire at them. You may provoke them to come back. Well, that was as near a thing as I remember to have seen. How did you manage it, Matamo? Kabu and Utango and I had been piling a big heap of reeds to make fires of, answered the Bishwana. It was lucky we made the heap so large. When we saw Mr. Margetts fire at the baboons, we knew what would happen, and we heaped the reeds around the wagons while the brutes were coming down the rocks. I dropped a match among the reeds as soon as they began the attack, but for a long time it wouldn't catch. Lucky it did catch at last, or we should have been torn to pieces. Well, you manage famously, Matamo said Hardy, and we all owe our lives to you. Yes, sir, and your dinners too. Very good eating is baboon, and there is enough for a great many dinners. Eating? repeated Reggie in disgust. You don't suppose any one would eat these brutes, do you? Well, Reggie, I agree with you. The idea isn't pleasant, said George, but they can be eaten, I believe. An old messmate told me that when his ship was at Gibraltar many years before, the colonel of one of the regiments there sent Captain Waters the haunch of a large ape which had been shot a few days before. The captain didn't see the haunch, but invited all the officers of the ship to dine off it. The colonel, who had only intended a joke, sent a note explaining it, but somehow it wasn't delivered until just as the haunch was being removed from the table, having been declared to be excellent. The captain put the note into the fire and said nothing about the matter. He was a wise man, said Hardy, and we shall be wise to follow his example and make a good dinner off of our late enemies. His advice was at once followed. Fresh fuel was collected and fires lighted, and presently the cooks were busily engaged over their roasting and frying. Come and take a look at the soldiers, suggested Margetts to Thunder Hayden and Rivers. I wonder how they came off in their wagon. They were much luckier than we were, said Rivers. Either the baboons didn't take any notice of their wagon, or they were bent like Hardy's elephant on punishing the culprit who fired on them. The soldiers were not attacked at all. I'm very sorry, I'm sure, said Reggie. I'll promise to be good another time, that is all I can say. But they made their preparations against attack, I suppose. Yes, said Van Hayden. They took off the prisoners' handcuffs, of course. They couldn't have left them in that helpless state to the mercy of those ferocious brutes. But I see they are going to put the handcuffs on again now. They moved nearer to the prisoners and stood for a while watching the replacing of the handcuffs. Then Rivers called out to Margetts, who was standing at a short distance, and asked him and Van der Hayden to ride a little way on the road by which they had come that morning to search for his revolver, which he must have dropped. The other two assented, and they went away together. About an hour and a half afterwards, when the dinners were nearly ready, Van der Hayden and Rivers returned, looking a good deal put out. "'Corporal Sims,' said the Dutchman, riding up to the person named, "'this is vexatious, but I am afraid we must stay here to-night. Mr. Rivers cannot find his revolver, and thinks he must have dropped it a long way back, at the first stream which we crossed.' Mr. Margetts has offered to ride back and look for it, and I am afraid we shall, in consequence, be obliged to remain here all night, as some repairs must be made to our wagon. Perhaps it is not of so much consequence, but are you able to stay? The corporal hesitated a moment, apparently a good deal surprised. Then he answered civilly that he saw no reason why they should not remain, as there was plenty of food and a good spring of water, and there was no particular need for haste. "'Very well, then,' said Van der Hayden, riding on. 
We will stay here till tomorrow. Nothing was said until the two horsemen were out of hearing. Then one of the prisoners said in a guarded tone, Do they suspect anything, do you think, Andreas? No, answered Andreas. I'm pretty sure they do not. Why do you ask that, Bostock? I've been uneasy all day, was the answer. Lest either Rivers or Van der Hayden should recognise us. It is quite true that I am stained as dark as any Zulu in the country, and so are Gott and Sullivan, and our beards and whiskers have been shaved, and our hair frizzled and dyed back, so that we could hardly recognise ourselves in the glass. But they are both of them wide-awake fellows, and I shouldn't like this kind of thing to go on long. I suppose our intention holds good to make an attack tonight, doesn't it? I don't see why not, answered the pseudo-corporal. It was agreed that we should, all of us, approach the wagon together as soon as the moon sets, and that will be before twelve o'clock. They keep a watch all night, I know. One of them stands sentinel at the fire near the wagon, but a rifle bullet will quiet him. Then we rush up and shoot the others. We shall have only four to deal with, instead of five now. The Hottentots are sure to run off at the first shot. Well, Getz may return, remarked got if he does he'll hardly reach the camp returned bostock someone had better be on the lookout for him a mile or so on the heidelberg road there will still be twelve of us left that will be enough to settle four men won't it even if they should not be asleep you forget the woman the corporal said with a smirk no i don't forget them andres answered bostock angrily but you had better do so. Forget Miss van der Aden at all events. You will remember that she is to become my wife as soon as we can reach Duenburg, where the missionary has promised to marry us. You had better all keep that in your heads, or you may chance to find an ounce of lead there. Well, you needn't be so cranky about it, John Bostock, said Sullivan. Will Andres and the others have been your pals ever since we came into the country nigh upon twelve months ago, and Jem Gott and I was your pals long before, and we've never done anything but please you, and we ain't going to now? Well, that's as it should be, Sullivan, and we need have no more words about that. Now dinner's ready, I see, so we'd better fall to that. Meanwhile, Van der Hayden and his two friends had no sooner completed their meal than they hastened to the wagon and summoned Matamo and Haxo to assist them in repairing the damage sustained. Their first step was to renew the canvas covering, which had been torn down. Then they nailed thick boards all round the lower part of the wagon and constructed a kind of citadel in the middle, consisting of four strong boxes about three feet high, inside which two persons might take refuge. I wish you would not think so much of me, urged Anchin, from whom it had been impossible to conceal the approaching danger. My life is of no more value than any one of yours, and you are neglecting, I am sure, your own safety. Henrik, will you not listen to me? Mr. Rivers, will not you? She blushed deeply as she spoke. Say no more, Anchin, returned her brother sternly, though with evident tenderness of feeling. We shall do our best, for ourselves as well as for you and there is every hope that Margetts will return before these scoundrels even begin their attack. It cannot be more than a two-hours ride to Heidelberg. I could do it myself in a little more than one, but then unfortunately I was only on terms of distant civility with Lieutenant Everts. It'll take Margetts at least two hours, observed Hardy, 
and then there may be difficulty in finding Mr. Everts and in getting his men together. It was three o'clock when Margetts rode off. If he is back by ten, it is as early as can reasonably be hoped. Ten will be enough time, remarked Rivers. They will wait for the moon to set, or there would be an easy mark for our bullets. And the moon does not set till eleven, said Van der Hayden. Besides, even if they do make their attack, it remains to be seen whether we cannot keep them off. It can hardly be worse than it was at Rock's Drift when we three stood side by side together, but I think we have now been as long at work in the wagon as it is safe for us to be. We might awaken suspicion if it was thought that we were fortifying it. We must get out and not return to it until after the moon is set. Anshin, I shall wish you good-bye now. You must be in your place of shelter when we return. He folded her in a warm embrace, and then leaped from the wagon, forgetting that George still remained, or unwilling perhaps, to witness his adieu. George took her hand and looked earnestly into her face. This may be the last time we shall meet, he said. I know I can never have my wish, but I should like you to know how fondly I love you. The tears rose in her eyes and streamed down her face. I do know it, she murmured. I do know it, George. I prize and I return it. Their lips met for a moment as if by a mutual impulse, and then Rivers leaped down and joined his companions, who had taken their places by the fire. The night came on clear and bright, as is the night of those regions. The moon, a dazzling globe of crystal, the stars studding the sky with brilliant specks of light. The three friends affected to converse carelessly together, intermingling their talk with bursts of merriment, but every ear was in reality strained to catch the distant tramp of horses' feet, the more keenly because the hour had now indeed come when Margette's return was not only possible, but might be reasonably looked for. Anxiously they watched the moon as it sank slowly down in the heaven, disappearing at last behind the distant mountain range, and comparative darkness succeeded, which under the shadow of the cliffs rendered objects, even at a little distance, scarcely distinguishable. Then they rose, and somewhat noisily bade the Hottentots good night, desiring them to keep a careful watch. Moving off to their own wagon, they crept stealthily behind and round under its cover to the other, which was reserved for Anchin and her attendants, and got inside, joining Matamo and Haxo, who were anxiously expecting them. They had lighted a lantern whose light just showed the interior of the wagon. Hark! What was that? exclaimed Hardy, as a sound resembling that of the discharge of a gun was heard at some distance. Can that be Margette's signal? It is most unlikely that he would discharge his gun, said Rivers. It would have the effect of putting these ruffians on their guard. He knows that we have no need to be warned. True, said Hardy, but if he is coming at all, it ought to be soon. It is nearly half past eleven. These fellows will make their attack almost immediately now. Ha! Listen! Yes, I hear them coming. Even as he spoke, a hand was laid on the shutter by which the back of the cart was closed, and an attempt made to pull it open. Van der Hayden put his head out. What are you doing here? he asked. This is my sister's sleeping place. I know that, Mr. Van der Hayden, and I know you and you too know me. I am Langley Cargill of the Nassau Regiment, your equal by birth and station. I design your sister no harm but to make her my wife. Give her up to me, and I will ensure her safety and the most honourable treatment. 
I would as soon give her into the hands of Satan, cried Van Hayden fiercely. You and your ruffians will do wisely to move off at once, or we will fire on you without mercy. Then take the consequences of your own folly. Fire into the wagon, boys, he shouted. We'll soon make an end of this. A dozen guns were discharged, and the leaden hail came rattling between the ribs of the tilt above them. It did not produce much effect, as all those within had thrown themselves on the floor, where the solid sides of the wagon, strengthened by the recent defences, prevented the bullets from penetrating. The next moment the fire was returned with more effect. Two of the pretended soldiers were shot dead on the spot. Bostock and one of his men were severely wounded. "'Rush up and smash the shutters before they can load again!' shouted Bostock, regardless of his wound. He caught up a heavy piece of timber which shattered the stout boards at a blow and was about to mount the attack, followed by his comrades, when a volley of musketry was suddenly poured in which stretched two or three or more of the banditti on the ground and a voice was heard calling them to surrender or no quarter would be shown. Van der Hayden and his companions leaped from the wagon to shake hands with Margetts and Everts, who with a couple of a dozen of his men had now completely surrounded the robbers nearly all of whom indeed were either killed or wounded but the danger was not entirely at an end as they had supposed bostock had been pierced by a second bullet and it was plain that he had received his death wound but his fierce spirit still bore him up he heard evett's challenge with a scornful laugh surrender he cried not i at all events i believe i am done for this time but there is still some fighting left in me henrik van der hayden i told you i should one day return your fire there is time to do so yet he raised himself with some difficulty and levelling his revolver fired at his antagonist who was only a few feet from him with fell satisfaction he noted that the shot had taken effect then he fell back and expired without a groan. End of chapter 18